This podcast is for investment professionals only. Welcome. Things aren't easy for income investors. There are now $12.5 trillion of debt around the world with negative yield, and the hunt for positive yielding assets continues to drive valuations higher and push investors further up the risk spectrum. And that risk is becoming all the more real as volatility picks up, growth slows, and central banks change their tone. All this at a time when the need for income has never been so great as ageing populations around the world need to fund their way through increasingly lengthy retirements. So what can be done? How can investors build portfolios that will safely deliver on income in uncertain times where the rules seem to be turning on their heads? With me, and poised with their answers, are three Fidelity portfolio managers, each focused on income strategies, but each representing a different asset class. First, here in the London studio, is Peter Kahn. Peter, welcome. You've got some 25 years years of experience investing in fixed income under your belt. What drew you to bonds? Well, believe it or not, Richard, I was foolish enough to leave the beginning of the first uh, tech bubble 1.0 back in San Francisco in the mid to uh, mid to late 90s. Well, it was possibly uh, a good time to leave it. Well, it, it might have been. Timing is everything, of yes. course, they say. Uh, but you know, for me, uh, having started out my career in financial markets with a, with a focus on equities, that was, uh, to me, a little bit of a, a one-dimensional uh, market uh, at, at the time, or so I thought. And I was very much much more attracted to thinking about multifaceted uh, impact of uh, the combination of the bottom-up stuff together with macro factors that tend to dominate in uh, in fixed income space as something that was uh, that sort of puzzle appealed to me. So complexity was uh, was part of the appeal for you. Well said. <laughs> okay. Well, also here in London uh, from the multi-asset team is Chris Forgan. Now, Chris, um, income is often seen as one of the more defensive uh, styles of investing. Are you yourself cautionary by nature? Does this explain your career? Yeah, I think I think it probably does actually. How, and certainly, how I was drawn into this particular area of of investments. I look at. You know what? It, what's attracted me over the years in terms of investment styles and managers, and I think have a natural cautionary nature that underpins what I do, and uh, that very much is at the heart, I think, of a, a multi-asset income approach. It seems like it was predestined, then, uh, Chris. Yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, joining us from Fidelity's Hong Kong office, representing the equity team in Asia, is Polly Kwan. Um, Polly, welcome to you. You've been based in Asia for all of your career, um, not typically regarded as a region with much of an income focus. How did you end up managing a portfolio with that income focus? I started at Fidelity in Tokyo back in 2000, where there was an increasing push of capital management and also return to shareholder in that country. So I witnessed that company which did more shareholders returns got more appreciated by the market in terms of share price performing. So that's how I have a bigger belief into dividend payment. And also later, I moved to Hong Kong from um, Tokyo, start covering property Property is a sector that needs more balance sheet and cash flow analysis. That helps me to do my job today. Because if you want to invest in company that can pay you dividend to today and tomorrow, you need to take a, an all-rounded approach, looking at not just P&L, but also balance sheet and cash flow. So it's a rounded view that, uh, that appeals to you as well? Yes. 
Okay, well, thank you all very much for, for joining me. Now, Peter, let's, uh, let's come back to you. Uh, we're in a new world, aren't we? The, the traditional reliable income assets, government bonds, high-quality corporate credit, uh, they're not doing what they used to. Are investors keeping up with this new reality? Uh, it's very difficult to keep up with the new reality of uh, basically return-free risk in those high-quality segments that used to be the foundation of investors' uh, portfolios, particularly uh, low-risk-tolerance investors just looking looking to clip a coupon to keep up with inflation, the degree of financial repression that we have today. It certainly doesn't sound very appealing. No, it, it implies that you need to stretch a little bit to um, basically run to stand still uh, in keeping up with inflation with generating a, an income stream from fixed income assets. Now, implies that you've got to go down in quality, not necessarily too far down in quality, but you certainly need to introduce some asset classes into the mix of asset allocation in your portfolio that uh, traditionally wouldn't have been there uh, in, in past days. So, you know, I, I mean, specifically things like high-yield bonds and emerging market corporates and, to a certain extent, uh, hybrid instruments can be the sort of uh, additional spice in a portfolio that, uh, on a well-diversified basis, will allow you to achieve what it is that uh, that you need on an income basis. So, you've got to get a lot racier um, with your fixed income allocation, which perhaps people haven't been used to, and that's the worry. That's that's right. And I mean, we've been hopeful that we would leave these times behind, these special times post-financial crisis that were seen, uh, you know, even last year as, as potentially an anomaly. Now that we are so deep into the uh, expectation of QE 2.0 or QE uh, infinity, uh, the idea is that, um, you know, we really must say that uh, the new normal perhaps endures for a lot longer than we previously thought. And that, of course, has led to this buzzword of Japanification or Japanization, depending upon who you, you you speak to. You know, this sort of locking in the low rate, uh, low inflation, low growth environment uh, in perpetuity is is, in, is is at the top of investors' and, minds. And, and Polly, that's the area, of course, that you you talked about. You started your career in Japan, and um, you know, a, a country that's had to deal with this sort of environment for for a very long time. Talking about your clients. Outside um, Japan, though, how are their demands changing when uh, you're talking to them about income uh, equity strategies? Asia has always been perceived as like growth only kind of um, region. However, I have to say that the attitude both from like the management side and also from investor side have changed over time. I mean, of course, you know, with this low interest rate environment, naturally people are seeking a higher, you know, income, but also it has to do with the demographics itself. I mean, Asia, we are no different from other parts of the world. If you look at it overall, we are facing an aging population. So with aging population, actually more investors want to have income on top of growth. So when they think about, you know, Asian equity, if you are investing into something that have like long-term growth, we still believe there is like long-term growth potential in Asia equity. But along that um, journey, you receive some dividend payment. This is something very, very nice to have, especially for an aging population. 
Well, we'll come to demographics um, in a moment, but just thinking about the company managements that um, that you talk to, you're saying that attitudes amongst them are changing, that they're beginning to um, be more prepared to, um, to to hand over dividends. Is that right? Yes, because a lot of the corporate in this part of the region, they suffer in the crisis in terms of the share price. They, they have been thinking hard, you know, how to have a more stable kind of share price. And then they know that there's a need from investor side that they will re- appreciate some kind of like sustainable and consistent dividend payout that will have good support to that share price. So that attitude also changed. One way of making your, your shares stickier, I suppose, of um, people hanging around for, for that as well. Exactly. Chris, coming to you, um, people are looking for, for new, clever ways to generate um, income. Is multi-asset benefiting from, uh, from that? Yeah, absolutely. I think multi-asset has seen huge growth in terms of demand, um, particularly for, for income solutions. You know, we can go where we see opportunities and we can retreat from areas where we see threats. Uh, and, uh, and as Peter alluded to earlier, you know, you think about your traditional income assets and you know, your, your government bonds, your high, high, high quality investment grade, which are certainly lower yielding today than they historically have been, we can continue to hold those assets for their defensive characteristics, but blend them with other assets, such as high yields, such as equity income, both uh, from Europe, but also from, from Asia as well. And alternatives as well, I imagine. Yes. I mean, this is the, the, you know, the, the other exciting area that somewhat exploded in the last sort of, 10 years post the financial crisis is the, the, the onset of the alternatives universe, where you know, we're able to access some attractive uh, opportunities, both from a return perspective, but also from an income perspective. When I talk about uter- alternatives, talk about things like infrastructure, renewables, um, loans, uh, asset leasing type uh, um, vehicles. Um, you know, the drivers of these of these asset classes are, you know, are often quite different to what drives mainstream asset classes, equities and bonds. And so when we bring them into, into a portfolio and blend them with, with these other asset classes is clearly very additive in terms of delivering a lower volatility outcome for the end client. What are you looking for then when you do build a portfolio? Just briefly describe how do you do that, um, that, that blend? What's the recipe? <laughs> well, it's very, you know, you know, we're very much looking at the opportunity set in front of us. Does this asset from the fundamental level look to be offering, you know, a value going forward uh, here and there? Are we getting paid to, to take on the associated level of risk? What's the driving force of that risk that underpins it today? And are we, you know, and what's the, the income generation? Uh, and, and how does that therefore sit alongside a lot of the other assets that we, we potentially could invest into in terms of the portfolio? Is it adding exposure to something we already have or is it bringing something that's differentiated to to the overall portfolio mix. Uh, and obviously, if it's the latter, and particularly with alternatives, that's what you get, then it, it, it adds value to the overall portfolio mix, particularly in terms of delivering a diverse, well-diversified portfolio, often with lower levels of volatility. So that's the appeal of, of alternatives, is that you're getting a different um, yeah. f- a different type of, uh, of revenue stream. But um, you've all talked about this this different world and uh, where the, the usual sources of income just um, aren't there. Um, it, thinking about the particular assets that each of you um, is looking for uh, for income if everyone else um, is piling in and um, you know seeing the appeal of, of, of bridges or, or whatever it might be then aren't the prices of those assets um, uh, driven higher as well yeah I mean they, you know in a lot of ways they react in, 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 in manners we've seen with you know traditional asset classes over the years so therefore you know we, we appraise them the same way and if the price of the asset has been driven higher and we think that's ultimately made the asset expensive or it's unsustainable then we'll clearly look to retreat away as we would with any any, any other investment you make it sound so simple. Peter, how about you? I mean, is it just going further and further up the uh, the risk spectrum? 
interestingly, I mean, Chris is absolutely right in terms of the forces that are that are at play that you've that you've highlighted. But uh, in thinking about an income-focused portfolio, particularly within within fixed income, uh, that definitely creates uh, an environment where you tend to in sort of extreme euphoria cycles, you tend to see that dash for trash kind of um, dynamic kicking in and people going all the way down into the most remote uh, and illiquid assets that, that they can find in order to uh, extract that additional value that they that they believe is there. And we haven't necessarily seen that happening uh, year to date within uh, sort of fixed income market performance. So if you think about the high yield market for a second on a risk adjustment basis, it's actually the higher quality elements uh, of the market that are producing the best returns here today. And that's because investors are indeed discriminating and concerned about a combination of factors, notably liquidity uh, and the potential for uh, default losses to uh, impair their values uh, further down the the food chain if and when uh, we do get a recessionary environment uh, developing in in, 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 uh, Say the U.S. economy or the European economy, uh, then you know you'd really anticipate that um, the lower quality assets are going to need to offer a much better compensation for the intrinsic risk that you're that you're taking than they than they do today. Uh, and so we have a bit of this investor schizophrenia going on at the moment, and that people are getting crowded into uh, as much um, income that they can possibly acquire. Uh, but they're at the same time in a sort of Afraid of taking that final step down into the into the mire, if you will, to to pick up uh, the juiciest uh, uh, of assets because they just don't know where you know how deep that swamp can can be uh, to to completely mangle the the yes, illusion. Yes, there. yes, it's, I mean, it, whatever it is, yeah. it sounds grim. Yeah. Um, uh, Polly, um, uh, the dash for trash. I mean, uh, that that's uh, perhaps not how you would describe um, finding uh, income inequities. I, I do um, agree that in the over short term, when there is a chase of like a yield, that the higher dividend yield stocks become very expensive compared to what they, they sh- where they should be. However, there is a difference if you want to invest into long term. I always tell people, do not only look at today's dividend yield, but you want company who can pay you today, also who can pay you at least the same amount of dividend tomorrow. So you know, don't fall into that dividend trap that I will call it, having full analysis, not only on the P&L, but also, you know, very solid analysis on the um, balance sheet and also cash flow to make sure that all the companies are going to pay at least as much dividends that they can pay today and tomorrow. Um, So that is very different. There is still a lot of like stock picking um, opportunity. So that's the analysis you can do just looking at a, at a spreadsheet. Um, what about the conversations that you have with management? What, what do you look for there? What gives you confidence about the, the dividend tomorrow? Investing using a dividend strategy, company visit and doing due diligence with the company is very, very important. I think if an analyst do a decent job in terms of looking at the dynamics in an industry, you know, the balance sheet, cash flow, I mean, they can do a 
a good forecast in terms of earnings, but whether a company will pay you a dividend tomorrow, it comes down to the management decisions. So you know, knowing the management well enough, knowing their track record, knowing their thinking, any concern, any investment plan that, that they may have in the next like 12 to 24 months, that makes a big difference. Um, that you know actually is part of um, a major step that I need uh, in order to assess whether a company will make the dividend payments that I'd expect in, in 12 12 months time. It's definitely fair to say that when you, you think about equity income investing, it's actually the, it tends to, on, on the whole, be the more defensive area of the market you get exposure to. You know, you see that particularly in risk-off periods uh, in, in markets that the, you know traditional equity income investors tend to perform certainly better than, than the, wider, the wider market on average. And you saw that certainly through the volatility we saw last year, particularly in Q4, where the natural defensive nature of a lot of these managers or, or, or investors uh, you know, comes, to, comes to the fore. So you know, that the sort of positive that underpins that, that approach. And a capital preservation. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Very much about strong balance sheets, cash flow generated of companies that can maintain the, the dividend over, over time. All three of you um, are sort of nodding at, at, at that aspect, uh, Peter. I mean, how, how do you build that in, that thinking? Well, I think there are a lot of uh, common aspects, obviously, in what Chris and, and Polly have said, and a lot of uh, uh, correlation, right, uh, between these different flavors of, of income products that we're trying to, uh, you know, manage and, and deliver superior returns for for clients. A lot of that correlation to interest rates uh, will mean that we tend to to move together, but there can be significant differences in alignment of of interests between uh, management creditors. And, and shareholders over time. So it's interesting to hear what you know Polly has to say in terms of the the priorities for her screening uh, companies and, and Chris as well uh, in portfolios, whereby you have confidence in the ability to generate uh, growth in cash flow to service the dividend. I mean that's clearly one part that's very important for a credit analyst to think about as well. But when the rubber hits the road, we may also have comfort and confidence as bondholders to own you names where exactly so when push comes to shove the dividend can be switched off uh, to the benefit of uh, ser- interest service uh, or assets can be sold and depending upon the you know the nature of the documentation uh, around the, the the bond instrument in question uh, the proceeds of that asset sale may or may not need to be delivered to to creditors so you know that's an additional factor that we'd be thinking about where you know naturally we'd have the same inclination as our colleagues in multi-asset and equity to say mm, we'd like to back off of a name that simply is not able to continue growing and uh, its capital structure may no longer be appropriate for it but if there are enough levers to pull uh, in, in in the balance sheet or in, in the cash flow to, to divert down that debt sluice rather than dividend sluice, then we may still be you know comfortable and confident enough to own some you know aging industries. Uh, you, if you, you might will. go where Polly fears to tread. We we might, which sounds perverse, right? Given yes. you know, because an investor <laughs> might think, well, you know, fixed income should be uh, you know more risk averse than an equity investor. Yeah. But you know, it's just that thinking about then the the combinations and permutations of uh, available uh, capacity to service the debt, where where things I think diverge. 
Now, you, you're both obviously sometimes looking at the same companies, uh, just different instruments um, uh, from them. And you alluded, um, Peter, to the fact that a credit analyst might also be looking at um, some of the same indicators from, from a company. Um, how much cross-pollination is there between the two sides, though, from equities and fixed income? How much do you look at those same companies together? Uh, increasingly, right? Increasingly. I mean, certainly on the uh, financial side, there's been a lot of good coordination for many, many years uh, on on this front, um, you know, particularly going back to that, um, you know, post-financial crisis uh, episode where uh, the global financials needed to raise a lot of capital, the credit uh, analysts working very closely together with equity analysts to really understand what was on the balance sheet and what the value of that might be, how much capital cushion is required. Uh, is kind of integral to the thinking about how we might want to position ourselves in the debt capital stack uh, of national champion banks in Italy, for example. Uh, and it's in increasingly happening more in, in industrial space, uh, technology space, and, and consumer space as capital markets grow. Uh, around the world. And we see new issuers coming to the market from uh, regions outside of developed markets to have the context of understanding where that kind of business, that kind of capital structure might trade elsewhere in the world. And then overlay some additional um, thinking about, well, this jurisdiction is a little bit more risky or these instruments are a lot less liquid than those that we naturally see helps us to to calibrate and, and, and develop an expectation. And and Polly, it may be a blessing that um, you don't invest in Italian banks, for example, <laughs> but um, um, how, how do you combine um, that, that different view in, in your approach? In terms of talking about stock picking, I mentioned that P&L, of course, I mean, in Asia, everybody wants growth. But I look at the balance sheet, whether a company is taking a reasonable reasonable level of debt, um, and I, I need to see a company that can generate free cash flow that can cover that dividend. Um, when companies in Asia, they move to a direction of like focusing more on a dividend or setting up a dividend policy, that also lead them to think about the capital structure more. Early on, um, Peter mentioned about, you know, when in a bad time, you know, how, how company can service that. I mean, from my side, because equity shareholder, if, you know, things go bad, that we are the last to collect any money left on the table. In Asia, we still want growth, but we, I want them to grow on a very healthy capital structure. Uh, which is what you want as we get towards the end of the cycle. Now, when that end happens, uh, none of us um, uh, seems to know for sure. It's been going on for as long as I can remember. Uh, Chris, how do you cope with that? How do you cope with unpredictable messaging from central banks, um, the effect of politics? Um, I, I won't name them now. It seems rude to. But um, how does that influence what you're thinking about as you as you manage your portfolios now? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly bringing more more risks and more challenges to how we look to construct our, our, our portfolios. But uh, you know, overall, it, you know, with, with these you know heightened risks that we that we perhaps see on the horizon, alongside sort of slowing growth globally at, at this juncture, certainly points to taking a more defensive positioning to one's portfolio. Look to be more diversified across um, you know as, asset classes and asset types. Peter, w- without a doubt, right? I mean, the uncertainties that we're dealing with on a day to day basis 
outcomes are very difficult to, to forecast and, and, and very difficult to, to hedge, but they need to be incorporated in the expectations about you know where um, things might get to uh, in, in terms of uh, radical changes in, in regimes uh, and uh, the market tail seeming to wag the dog of, uh, you know, of the FOMC uh, policy the at, 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 the, at the Federal Reserve at the, at the moment is, is just one of them that um, you know we clearly need to factor into our to our thinking uh, about how quickly uh, regimes may may change but actually for an income based investor a lot of this minute to minute and day to day stuff um, you know it probably creates more opportunity than threat and a lot of it can just be considered noise uh, but if the if if the cycle Ends uh, in, in a way that's that's unanticipated. It will come back to the point that uh, that that Paulie made earlier about quality and confidence in in balance sheets that will make a difference, particularly for for fixed income investors. You know, when you do need to add a little bit of risk into the to the mix because there is no free lunch to generate your your income stream, and you have a, a reasonable allocation to to high yield, you want to have a reasonable confidence that most of the significant positions in your portfolio are indeed. Uh, you know, worth the paper they're printed on, so to speak, and you you have high, enough. Yeah, the high 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 conviction levels in uh, the companies being able to one way or another. Uh, to to redeem that uh, that debt, uh, and you know, in in it's that kind of environment and modeling around stresses that uh, I think will become ever more important in the thinking about constructing portfolios in the future. So you're able to ignore the vacillations, uh, the noise, as you put it. I'd uh, love to be able to completely ignore it. Well, but, uh, you, know, you, you you can take a, you can stand our... a little bit above them. But one thing yeah. you can't ignore mm-hmm. because it's something that is affecting um, all of us everywhere in the world. And Polly referred to it early on um, with the demographics uh, that are changing, an aging population around the world, uh, it, well, almost everywhere. How, how does that play out in, in your world? What, what concerns you about that side of things? Well, you know, I don't know if it's necessarily a concern because that would be sort of the silver lining in the cloud for uh, for fixed income as an asset class is that, uh, you know, as populations age and, um, you know, need to have more focus perhaps on capital preservation, uh, then they will tend to allocate a little bit more to, to to fixed income. So the risk is, from from our perspective, that we can no longer rely upon uh, past history to dictate exactly how cheap uh, fixed income assets can become in the event that growth picks up and inflation picks up, because there's such a significant pool of savings that are looking for uh, a desirable income stream that are willing to commit to uh, additional fixed income exposure at lower and lower levels. Uh, So that's, I think, one of the, the, the dynamics that's currently at play in the market. This sort of you know, buy the dip on the back of the central banks is a is a short-term cyclical thing, but the, the buy the dip on the back of the demographic trends uh, and debt disinflation dynamics uh, in the global economies, that's uh, a more structural thing that um, you know we need to contend with. Much bigger picture. It's, it's about managing people's expectations, too. And this new reality yeah. that uh, yeah. we began with, of course. Yeah. And, and Polly, um, I, I, I cut you off earlier talking about demographics, but um, uh, what are your thoughts? I mean, you're 
we're in a, um, a, a part of the world, China is aging, other parts of, of Asia uh, much younger. How do you adapt? I think, like I said before, I think investors overall, there is an increasing demand for, for income. But at the same time, I think um, the one beauty about like Asia in particular is that we are just at the beginning, you know, very, very early stage in terms of companies starting to have like a consistent dividend um, payout. So there is still a lot of opportunity there. And another example is a lot of developers already have REIT, but REIT is a relatively new thing. Not that many markets in Asia have read um, set up yet. So that will be like um, an extra um, investment instruments that we can have from the equity size that can generate decent dividend uh, stable income at the same time if you believe in the overall growth story in, in, in Asia. Asset price appreciation will also benefit the investor as well. So, you know, I always tell my investors if they buy, you know, Asian stocks, buying something with uh, an in- income there, you get like the valuation buffer, uh, you enjoy the long-term growth story in uh, in Asia, but you also collect a dividend paycheck every quarter or every six months. One more question um, for each of you, a final bit of advice. What should someone consider? What are the opportunities they should watch for at the moment for those people who are who are looking for income? Chris, let me come to you first. I'll probably talk uh, you know closer to home really on this one, linking back to your previous question, just talking about demographics. And you, and you mentioned earlier that people are obviously living longer nowadays and and, and requiring a, a form of income in retirement. Um, we can you know look across all these asset classes to bring a, a solution together that can be very targeted in nature. And, and later in life, you know, you're wanting the assurance of your capital you know, going forward. So a more defensive approach, focusing on very much on the downside is a strategy that can sit along perhaps I am other income solutions in retirement. Successfully pitching your uh, your home oh, yeah. turf there. <laughs> well done. Um, now, let me ask my single asset class um, uh, managers here. Polly, let's come to you first. <laughs> um, I think opportunities that we are facing in, in Asia. Um, one Another topic that we didn't really touch upon, um, which is in the spotlight, these days is like the trade war. A lot of people when they invest in Asia, you know, are very scared about, you know, the a potential outcome, negative outcome from the trade war. And that's why, for example, a lot of the tech stock got sold down. But as an income fund manager, one thing that I can tell you, the beauty about Asia is that we have quite a few tech stocks that have a very solid balance sheet. Some of them even a net cash balance sheet, very good like free cash flow. So if you're a long-term investor and then you believe that this trade war um, is still going to resolve one way or the other, um, actually you get to pay you know, in the form of dividends to be patient and waiting for that. So um, I think, think um, this is a one, one opportunity that people can look into in Asia. And Peter, final word to you. So two interesting things. One you mentioned at the beginning was $12 trillion of negative yielding debt. And the, the second thing that, that Polly's just um, left us with was you know, trade war resolution ultimately you know, coming about. The combination of those two factors is probably the biggest danger for fixed income uh, investors at the moment. Because once we have the sort of pressure valves released and perhaps so much of this monetary stimulus is no longer required, we are going to see uh, 
perhaps a shift in, in interest rates. We wouldn't expect that to be your father's shift in interest rates or mother's shift in interest rates of you know, 100, 200, 300 basis points. But uh, 50 to 100 basis points back up in yields will create some capital loss for investors who are currently getting crowded in. Uh, so I think at the moment, the sensible thing to do is not only to uh, decrease the duration of the portfolio, but uh, the offset to that in order to maintain an enhanced income stream is to, is to diversify uh, and to consider uh, almost a barbell approach of uh, you know high quality uh, investment grade credit and and government bonds if and where you can find them with a positive yield uh, and, and a positive real yield uh, namely something like US Treasuries and then adding some high quality uh, emerging markets and high yield credit to the mix um, you know helps to provide uh, investors with a with a good risk adjusted balance in the portfolio ever alert to the dangers. Well, thank you, Peter Kahn, as well as Polly Kwan and Chris Forgan. Now, if you want to read more about income investing, we have a whole edition for you on the topic online. Just search Fidelity Answers. And if you like this discussion, please do rate us on your podcast app. That's it from me. The producer was Seb Morton-Clark and studio management was by a technical army, Connor Bailey and Alex Wilcox here in London and Tommy Sue in Hong Kong. Thank you very much indeed for listening. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please see our website, professionals.fidelity.co.uk forward slash about hyphen fidelity.